where we've left the book of Ecclesiastes, and you know, the only thing that helps me in the disappointment of leaving one book study is going to the next book study. So I'm excited about the book of Ephesians uh, and our time in it, and we're going to be looking uh, at this in a moment. So keep your Bibles open to, the, to that passage that was just read. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your book. Thank you for making yourself known to us from Genesis to Revelation. And help us, Lord, as we just uh, land here in the book of Ephesians for a little while, God, that you would teach us much about yourself, much about who we are in Christ, and much about what it means to be the church. And so touch us where we live life. Encourage us by the Spirit of God. And may you have your way in our hearts through me this morning. Empower me to speak that which points to you and you only, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A young American engineer was sent to Ireland by his company to work in a new electronics plant. It was a two-year assignment that he had accepted because it would enable him to earn enough money to marry his longtime girlfriend. While he was in Ireland for these two years, his fiancée remained in Tennessee. They corresponded often, but as the lonely weeks went by, she began expressing doubts that he was being true to her, exposed as he was to beautiful Irish young women. The young engineer wrote back, declaring with some passion that he was paying absolutely no attention to the local girls. I admit, he wrote, that sometimes I'm tempted, but I fight it. I'm keeping myself for you. On the next mail, the engineer received a package. It contained a harmonica and this note from his girlfriend. It said, I'm sending this harmonica to you, she wrote, so you can learn to play it and have something to take your mind off those girls. The engineer replied, thanks for the harmonica. I'm practicing on it every single night and thinking of you. At the end of his two-year stint, the engineer was transferred back to company headquarters. He took the first plane to Tennessee to be reunited with his girl. He got off the plane, and he rushed forward to embrace his girlfriend. But she held up a restraining hand and said sternly, just hold on a minute. Before any kissing and hugging gets started here, let me hear you play the harmonica. (laughs) Do we say to the lost world, do we dare say to a lost world, watch me, observe my life, see whether I pass the test? As Joe Aldridge aptly put it, we need to be good news before we can bring good news. We say to a lost world, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the good news. And the world says, play something. The world is interested in hearing the music before they'll listen to the words we speak. What's the music? Well, listen in on Jesus' prayer for his followers. You'd find these words in John chapter 17. Jesus prayed this. He said, may they, his followers of all generations, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Unity matters to God. My unity 
be the key to reaching the lost worlds. Well, what does that look like? How can we live aboard the fellowship to coin a Max Lucado phrase? He likens our spiritual pilgrims, pilgrimage to a large ship on which followers live on their way to glory. Lucado goes on to say this. He said, there are many adrift on the sea who would like to get on board, except for the fact that they don't want to get caught in the middle of a fistfight between two sailors. Hmm. In the Phoenix comic strip, Charlie Brown is sitting alone watching television. In storms Lucy, demanding that he change the channel to the one she wants to watch, threatening him with her little fist in his face. Rather meekly, Charlie Brown asks her what makes her think she can walk in here and take over. She blurts out, these five fingers, and she tightens it into a fist. Well, it works. Charlie Brown changes the channel. Slowly, Charlie Brown slips out of the room feeling like a wimp. And he looks at his five fingers and he asks, why can't you guys get organized like that? <laughs> yeah. Why can't the church get organized like that? Why should we be intimidated by what the evil forces throw at us when we have been given the keys to the kingdom? When God has promised that he will build his church, why are we intimidated? We can get it together, not to fight each other, but to do battle with the true enemy. And Satan knows that if God's people ever get it together, I mean really together, his influence would be severely limited. Why else does Satan go to great lengths to divide the church? Oh, what havoc he has wreaked. But quite frankly, though at times, I don't think he has to work too hard. <laughs> our obsession with wanting our own way and our occupation with pettiness has made his job rather easy. We give him plenty of ammunition to work with. Lord Horatio Nelson was one of Britain's greatest naval heroes. As his fleet was sailing into battle one day, Nelson's men began to fight amongst themselves. Calling out their names, Nelson pointed to the approaching fleet and exclaimed, Gentlemen, there is the enemy. Let's remember who our enemy really is. Let's pull together, support one another, believe in one another, care for one another, and pray for one another. In other words, let's go beyond coming to church. Let's be the church. What's your view of the church? Do you see the church as a building? Then you're not looking high enough. Do you see church as what we do on Sunday mornings? Then you're not looking deep enough. Who or what is the church? That's the question we will be exploring over the next several weeks in our study in the book of Ephesians. And if you aren't already there, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, perhaps more than any other book in the Bible, gives us an explanation of the mystery and the ministry of the local church. And my approach to this series is a little bit unusual for me, because typically in a book study, I would begin at chapter 1 and make our way through the book, biting off sections at a time each week. Well, instead, we're going to fly at several thousand feet this morning, and we're going to look at chapters 1 through 3, providing you with one 
principle for what it means to be the church. When we come to chapters 4 through 6, beginning next week, we will slow down a bit looking at the other nine principles over a period of nine weeks. And then as we come to the end of chapter 6, we're really going to put the brakes on as we look at the various pieces of the spiritual armor, one piece at a time, over the summer months. So that's the game plan. Let's see how it pans out. Well, the passage we're focusing on this morning from chapter 2, I believe, best captures the essence of the first three chapters. That's why I chose this one out of that broad section. Paul spends the first three chapters in Ephesians dealing with our position as believers. The first three chapters of Ephesians don't command us to do anything, really. They just state what is true about us. It's in chapters 4 through 6 that discuss how we ought to act based on who we are. So I want to walk you through Ephesians chapter 2 because it builds to a climax of the passage that was read earlier. Now, if you're trying to find an outline and a point and all that, you're not going to find the points. I'm not saying it's pointless, but we're just not going to have points, okay? Now, in chapter 2, in chapter 2, we have a description of what we were and deserving of if it weren't for Christ saving us by His grace. This great chapter, chapter 2, opens up by saying in verse 1, we were dead. We were dead. The end of verse 3 speaks of our being under God's wrath. Yes, you were under God's wrath. This whole thing, this is what I deserve. You want to go there? What we deserve is God's wrath. But because God is full of grace, verses 4 and 5 go on to say, we are alive in Christ. And that brings us to the classic statement of God's grace in verses 8 through 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, chapter 2 instructs us on, how, on who is in the church and how you get in the church. There's no more urgent issue in your life than whether or not you are included in Christ. You might say, well, great, put me in the invisible church so I don't have to come to church again. Huh. Doesn't work that way. A pastor spoke one Sunday of being in the army of God, and a man greeted him after the service, and he said, Pastor, I am in the army of God. And pastor replied, then why is it? I only see you a couple of times a year. (laughs) And he said, oh, I'm in the secret service. (laughs) (laughs) You, You see, God's grace doesn't end with our individual salvation. For he has also brought all believers together into one new body, the church, which eliminates all man made divisions and distinctions. Whether you like it or not, When God saved you, he placed you into a larger community called the church. And with that comes both privileges and responsibilities. And that leads to the climax in the heart of this book. We come to verses 13 through 18 of chapter 2. Follow along as I read. Chapter 2, verse 13. But now, but now. Beautiful words. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing in his flesh the law, the moral law, with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Beautiful words. Paul goes to great lengths to say, get a grip on who you are, people. And who are we? We'll go back at verse 13 of chapter 2. We were once far away, but now we've been brought near. That's pretty potent. You hear what this is saying? You were once far away. You're brought near. God is always near. Always. If he seems far away from you right now, who moved? For in Christ, sin is removed. We were once alienated and enemies of God, but when Jesus was crucified, he removed the alienation. Where we were once separated from God, the blood of Christ brought us peace with God. That's what he goes on to say in verse 14. Jesus himself is our peace. He's our peace. Who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier. It's a story that's told from World War II of a group of American soldiers who lost their buddy in battle. And they carried his body to the only cemetery in the area which happened to be Catholic. When the priest was told the dead man was not Catholic, he said, oh, I'm sorry, but he cannot be buried here. Well, the disheartened and discouraged soldiers decided to do what they thought was best, and during the night, they buried the comrade just outside the cemetery fence, right outside. They returned the next day to to pay their respects, but they could not find the grave outside the fence where they had buried him. When they told the priest of their quandary, he said, Well, the first part of the night, I stayed awake, sorry for what I had told you. And the second part of the night, I spent moving the fence. (laughs) When it says here that Jesus Christ destroyed the barrier, he moved the fence. In order that in himself he might make the two into one new man. No person who comes to him will be excluded. In Christ, we are all inside the fence. All of us. And the biblical theological word for what God has done here is the word reconciliation. Grab this. We are a reconciled people. Now, why is that so important? Because God aims to make the church, the body of Christ, into a showcase of his glory. Every local church is to be the visible expression of Christ in his or her worlds. It isn't as much about bringing people to the church, but for the church to go out into the world, bringing Jesus' presence with them as they go. This is the, the beauty of Jesus' strategy. As the worship service ends this morning, and and as you make your way out of this building, Jesus goes with you. Jesus is showing up in offices in in, in Albany and and on work sites all over this area and and schools all across Albany and and, and green counties and, and wherever your job or responsibilities may take you. 
He shows up there because you take Jesus with you. You don't have to bring people here to meet Jesus. You are Jesus to them. You can go to them. That's the beauty of the strategy. That's why we must break from our holy huddles and our private clubs and be the visible representation of Christ to the godless culture and the world around us. We're a reconciled people. But it doesn't end there. We must be a reconciling people. We are a reconciled people, so we must be a reconciling people. That is the first principle in being the church right there. We are a reconciled people, so we must be a reconciling people. Now, to fully appreciate what's going on here in this passage, we need to realize something of the animosity of Jews toward Gentiles and vice versa. None of today's social distinctions are more exclusive and hostile than the separation between Jews and Gentiles in biblical times. A Jew could not even help a Gentile woman giving birth, for that would only bring another heathen into the world. Gentiles were considered dogs. Those aren't the nice little pets that are in your home. They're diseased and dirty, and it's not a very pleasant, flattering term. There was alienation. And the main reason for such alienation was spiritual. The Gentiles were not given the promise of a Messiah. The Gentiles were not a people considered to be under God in a theocracy. They were estranged from God and they were without hope. Even in their present day temple, there was a wall which separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple. No foreigner, no, no, no alien, no stranger, no Gentile could enter within the barricade which surrounded the sanctuary and the enclosure. They could not go near. Let me illustrate it this way. Picture Yankee Stadium. Well, if you will, allow me to picture Fenway Park, okay? And there's a baseball game going on. The Gentiles are season ticket holders, but they're not allowed into the stadium. They are in the parking lot watching the game. The Jews are inside the stadium where the action is. They have the, the best seats. As a matter of fact, there is this sign outside the park that says to the Gentiles, if you try to sneak into the stadium, we will kill you. That's what it was like. Now picture someday that that wall of the stadium leveled that's now open for everyone to come near. They no longer have any obstructions. I mean, mean, it grossly depicts what has taken place when Jesus was crucified. The wall was leveled. All could come near. We all have front row seats. There are no obstructions in knowing Christ. Nothing. Nothing. The Jews needed the cross. The Gentiles needed the cross. There aren't two ways of salvation. There was one great work of salvation on the cross when Jesus died to knock down the wall of hostility between God and Jew and between God and Gentile. And he did this reconciling work not separately but into one body, the church. They had to learn to live together. Now, distinctions are okay. Prejudice is not. Someone handed me this business card of a church in Florida to kind of advertise their church and get the word out. And it says on the side, classifieds, wanted, <laughs> people with a brain, preferably used but no experience necessary, imperfect background, acceptable, excellent benefits, 
retirement plan that's out of this world. We'll train. Apply 8, 9.30, or 11 on Sunday morning. Gulf to Lake is an equal opportunity church and does not discriminate with regard to race, color, gender, age, or social status. However, we do discriminate against complainers, whiners, religious bigots, and judgmental people. (laughs) I kind of like that. I'm not planning to do this soon. (laughs) Relax. But folks, we can't water this down. The answer to alienation, the answer to racism and to prejudice and to hatred and to estrangement and to hostility is one word, reconciliation. And Paul goes out of, the way, out of his way to explain it. So think of animosity and think of hostility and then say Jesus came in and, and took all that away, knocked it down, and he wants us to now have reconciliation. Now what's the result here? Verse 19 says, consequently... Consequently, follow along as I read verses 19 through 23. We're landing for the application here. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Now, here's the application for us this morning. It's three metaphors that Paul uses to describe who we are in Christ. I want us to grab this. Who we are in Christ uses three metaphors in these verses to describe that. The first metaphor is we are members of God's kingdom. We are members of God's kingdom. It says fellow citizens. The word foreigners there in verse 19 means somebody who's an outcast. A keep them at a distance kind of person. The word alien there in verse 19 is the idea of one who's not a citizen of anything but is allowed into the household as a guest. So Paul is saying that you're either a wretched outcast that you wouldn't invite into your home or you're a house guest with no rights. But this is no longer true for those who know Christ. We are fellow citizens. All of us. All who know Christ our fellow citizens. There are to be no strangers in the family of God. There are no house guests. There really ought never to be a feeling of being on the outside looking in. That's the first metaphor. The second metaphor to describe who we are is that we are members of God's family. The end of verse 19. We are members of God's family. We're not a business We're family. And sorry, but you don't get to pick your family members. (laughs) It's been said, we inherit our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't choose them. It's true. And I long for that place where as family members, we're able to be ourselves. We're able to be ourselves. I know some of us are strange. I include myself in that. Someone has said the church family is like fudge, mostly sweet with a few nuts. That's okay. We're going to be nutty. But if God has accepted each one of us, how can we not accept each other? You say, but if you knew what I know about this person, listen, you don't know what God knows about them, and he accepts them. 
God knows everything about us, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he accepts us. We only think we know all we need to know about others and choose not to accept them. We're family. We have a blood bond, the blood of Jesus Christ, which has bonded all of us into the same family. Now, the third metaphor that Paul uses here is that we're God's temple. Now, I don't have time to go into the richness of this picture, but Paul is using Old Testament terminology to explain how the church is to function as the expression of God's presence today. Like I was saying earlier, as we go out of this building, we are his presence wherever we go because we are his temple. We don't come in here where it's sacred. Sacred. We're sacred as we go out. That's the temple. That's what the picture is of who we are. And the temple for the nation Israel was the place where God was uniquely present among his people. Now he's saying by the Spirit, everywhere you go, you are that in a very unique way. And the foundation of this temple, as it goes on to say in verse 20, is on the apostles. In Matthew 16, 13 through 19, Jesus pressed the disciples to answer who they thought he was. Remember, who do, they, who do others say I am? This. Who do you say I am? See, they needed to be in agreement on the person of Jesus Christ. And they said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was significant. Everything was going to be built on that foundation, that answer. The church is a body of people who are absolutely convinced that Jesus is the one and only Son of God and Savior. Now, this is the only foundation we must build upon. Remembering that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. It's the cornerstone that determines the stability of the foundation and the character of the entire building. It was the cornerstone that decided the architectural unity and symmetry of the rest of the building. It affected, the cornerstone affected the lay of the walls and the dimension of the structure. Now folks, we tamper with the foundation and the building will crumble. Sad to say, there are Christian colleges that are tampering with the foundation. There are churches that are tampering with the foundation. It will crumble. Jesus' promise to build the church is now removed from that local assembly. We mustn't mess with the foundation ever, ever. Following one of the worst hurricanes of the century at that time in Florida, a TV news camera crew was on assignment filming the widespread destruction of Hurricane Andrew. In one scene, amid the devastation and debris, stood one house, stood one house on its foundation. The owner was cleaning up the yard when a reporter approached him. He, he said, sir, why is your house the only one standing? How did you manage to escape the severe damage of the hurricane? And the man replied, well, I built this house myself. I also built it according to the Florida State Building Code. And when the code called for two-by-six roof trusses, I used two-by-six roof trusses. I was told that a house built according to code could withstand a hurricane. I did, and it did. Now, storms are going to come and go. But a church built to God's code can withstand the worst of storms. 
If we build according to God's design, being the church as he's called us to be, then, then neither internal storms nor typhoons from outside will be able to cause a collapse. See, it isn't a question of whether we're going to experience conflict, because we will. But will we deal with it in such a way that survives the storm? And this is one of the great practical challenges of being the church at First Baptist Church of Westerlo. We must be a reconciling people because we are a reconciled people. Being the church means, being the church means that unreconciled relationships are at odds with the reality of what we are and with what Christ has done in creating one body. As many of you know, I've done some coaching in basketball. And there were times in the game when two members of the team, of of my team, would jump up for a rebound, a loose ball, and unknowingly both from the same team would fight for the ball. And I would yell, or others on the team would yell, same team! Hmm. There are times I have wanted to yell to my church family as they would fight with each other, same team! Hmm. Brothers and sisters in Christ, same team. We're on the same team. We've been made one through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are one. That is what we are. We need to play as one, even better than we're doing. Because we're not doing a bad job. Or we need to do better. We've got to function as one, and we're going to look more at that uh, next week. But for today, let's remember what we are. We are reconciled. Oh, life aboard the fellowship. We're in the same boat. And like Noah's Ark, there may be quite a stink at times inside. (laughs) But by God's grace, still afloat. There were two unmarried sisters who shared a single room. And as people are apt to do who live in close quarters, the sisters had a falling out. The controversy was so bitter that they never spoke again, ever. There were no words, either kind or spiteful, just silence. But they continued to live in the same house together in the single room. A chalk line, one chalk line was drawn to separate one domain from the other in that one single room. For years, they coexisted in hateful silence. Each woman's meals, baths, and family visitors were exposed to the other's unfriendly silence. At night, each went to bed listening to the heavy breathing of her enemy. Thus, the two sisters who called themselves Christians continued the rest of their miserable lives. All over America, chalk lines are dividing households, Spouses, neighborhoods, and yes, even churches. Have you drawn an imaginary line between you and another believer? Have you? Have I? Are you presently at odds with another brother and sister in Christ and you're refusing to move toward them? What are we to do? What are we to be? 
We are a reconciled people. That is what we are. So let's be reconciling people. Let's pray.